Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. I've highlighted the importance of interest rates in many of our past podcasts. Today, I plan to spend several minutes on what is perhaps one of the least understood and one of the most important functions of interest rates. I'm referring to how interest rates greatly impact overall stock prices. Let's start with some of the most understood impacts of higher interest rates, then work toward one of the largest impacts that's least understood on future stock prices. For the better part of 15 years, the world has been recovering from the 2008-2009 Great Recession that was largely the result of easily obtainable home mortgages liars' loans, packaging of subprime mortgages disguising their poor qualities, and, overall, the extreme self-interest of mortgage bankers, appraisers, banks, and investment banks to collect fees all through the mortgage process while sticking the mortgage payment risks with the buyers of these so-called securitized investments. Back then, Many investment banks, such as Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, were bankrupted. And even Merrill Lynch had to be bought by Bank of America, which itself used many billions of dollars in government bailout money. We could go on and bring in the $180 billion bailout of AIG, which at the time provided repayment types of insurance on these securitized mortgage pools, or the many banks that were teetering on bankruptcy, but we'll stop here, as our point is the future of stock prices as a function of our changed high interest rate environment. To study the global financial system, pretty much all the world's major central banks kept short-term interest rates near zero for 10 or 15 years, and now that has changed rather dramatically. We discussed this change from historically low interest rates to historically rapid increases in interest rates in our prior podcasts, which, by the way, are still available if you wish to again refer back to them. Our subject today is what the higher interest rate environment means to the future of stock prices overall. Let's start with a quick review of some important fundamentals. First, the Federal Reserve controls through their policies short-term, maybe from one day to one to two years, maybe a little bit longer, but they could not control the really long-term interest rates, those that are 10, 20, or 30 years or more. At least they can't control those rates for more than a few days. The long-term end of the market is simply too large and trades trillions, with a T, trillions of dollars every business day. Amounts that even dwarf the Federal Reserve's money movements, which are more in the magnitude of billions of dollars a day. The Federal Reserve directly controls the federal funds rate and through its open market operations can very temporarily impact the yield curve by selling short-term U.S. Treasury debt in their portfolio while simultaneously buying the long-term Treasury notes and bonds. Again, they do not have unlimited financial capabilities to do this, so it's a very short-term impact. So what determines long-term interest rates if it's not the Federal Reserve? Two things. One, expectations of inflation throughout the major investment community. And number two, large investors who need to buy long-term bonds 
almost regardless of interest rate levels. Let's take the first one. Would anybody or any company make a long-term loan at 4% if the annual inflation rate during the term of the loan is expected to be 8%? Would you invest in a 4% government bond if prices of goods and services would be known to increase at 8% during the term that you own the bond? If you invested in a 10-year government bond, you get 4% interest paid to you every year, but you'd have to pay another 4% on your goods and services just to stay even. So you'd be using the interest rate income to only pay half of your living expense increases. Then at the end of 10 years, you'd get your principal back, but your principal would only buy about half of the goods and services your principal would buy this year. Bad deal, right? The largest government bond investors do these type of calculations all the time. So why are insurance companies, bond and mutual funds, and sovereign wealth funds, and other large investors buying 4% government bonds today? Are they crazy? Maybe. Maybe not. There are two reasons they're buying today. They are the same two reasons they bought over the past 15 years when their bond investment rates were even lower. Remember when the 10-year government bond rates were actually under 1% only a couple of years ago? They buy long-term bonds to match the terms of when they think they'll need the money. Life insurance companies, for example, collect your premiums that you pay every month for years, knowing that someday if you keep your policy up, they'll have to pay a death benefit far in the future, but all at once. They use mortality tables to predict when they'll have to pay, and they buy bonds to ensure their money will be there. Actually, this brings up another point that's important but off-topic. In an era of low interest rates, as we've had for more than a decade, they price their insurance products higher as their investment earnings from bonds are lower. So if they're going to pay a million-dollar death benefit and they think it's 30 years from now, if they're not earning very much on their investments, they have to collect more from you, the owner of the life insurance policy. So now these companies will benefit since their new investments or their reinvestments of monies that you've given them will earn them much higher income. The same works in reverse. If life insurance companies price their premiums during a high interest rate environment, let's say it's a high interest rate environment for 10 or so years, which we've seen, they'll face large future losses as their investment income will earn them lower and lower amounts and possibly so low as interest rates go down in the next cycle. They won't have enough money to pay their future claims. So you're getting the theme of today's discussion. It's about present value. If interest rates are high, your investment will compound at a high rate and you'll have more money in the future. If interest rates are low, you'll have less money in the future in your retirement or your investment accounts. The great equalizer in all of this is inflation. If interest rates are 4% higher, but inflation is also 4% higher, then you're not getting ahead. Or worse, if inflation is 4% higher, but interest rates don't go up at all, then you're losing a lot. You're seriously losing. I want to give you some food for thought, and I encourage you to do your own research. Most of our listeners, I think, are pretty knowledgeable about a stock's price-earnings ratio, so-called P-E ratio. This is the price of the stock divided by its earnings per share. The price of the stock changes all during the day 
during the week, during the month, during the year, and the earnings are based on its likely earnings. Since earnings are only released once every quarter, the marketplace trades based on changing information continually estimating a company's earnings during the year. Don't worry, we're not going to go through an in-depth analysis. We are instead going to focus on the overall levels of the market's price-earnings ratios. Said another way, when interest rates are low, investors will pay more for stocks overall, as company earnings are worth more today in present value. For example, if you can't get more than 1% or 2% a year from your savings account or CD, and that occurs when inflation is generally low, you'll pay more to own an investment that gives you 6, 8, or even a higher return. Taking one more step in this example, you'll pay more for an apartment investment if it promises 6% annual return based on the rents that you'd collect minus your investments, your operating expenses of the apartment and property taxes. Why put money in a 1% to 2% bank CD in this example? But as interest rates go up and you could earn 4% or 5% on a bank CD, you won't be so eager to buy that 6% return apartment and take the future risks of managing it day to day. Okay, so far, back to the stock market. As interest rates go up, and particularly when the economy is getting weaker, you'd rather invest in more certain returns like CDs, savings accounts, bonds, and the like, instead of risky stocks. You'll also consider that a weakening economy is not good news for business profits, which would in turn depress company values like stock prices. If a company earns less, it's worthless. If companies don't earn anything and they lose a lot of money, they could be on the road to bankruptcy. But our focus today is actually not a deteriorating economy, although we've argued that's the case. Our focus is interest rates all by themselves. When both inflation and interest rates are high, the price earnings ratios of stocks goes down. Let me say it again. When inflation and interest rates are high, the price earnings ratios of stocks goes down. Think about it. That should make sense, right? Let's go back to our examples just mentioned. When interest rates are low, investors pay more for stocks to get a better return. This makes the price earnings ratio of the stocks go up. As people demand more stocks, the price goes up and the earnings may or may not go up, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now I'll share some of the actual historical data that's really long-term in terms of related trends. The 1910s, the 1940s, and the 1970s were the poster children of P.E. ratio declines during the period from a record high P.E. ratio through the next 10 years of higher interest rates. In the 1970s, inflation fighting under Fed Chairman Volcker is famous, but that's another interesting story. Here's the bottom line. The P.E. ratios of stock during these three periods dropped almost 50%. In other words, the stock markets dropped by about a half and it was really focused on people willing to pay less of a premium or less of a PE multiple to own stocks during periods when interest rates were increasing. I can give you kind of some specifics, but overall PE ratios in all three of these time periods started out between 15 and 17 across the whole market. That should sound familiar because that's been a marker for at least the past century. 
pretty consistently. Price earnings ratios of 15 to 17, but year after year, as interest rates were going up, and if we look at a period of nine years or 10 years during a period of increase interest rates, price earnings ratios declined on the average by 47% for all three of these time periods. In other words, they dropped by about half, which means if the earnings of the company stay the same during this period, the stock prices would drop by half. Now let's look where the P.E. ratios started before they had the drops and talk more about today. The U.S. equity market valuations when the inflationary decade began, and I for one am assuming that we are both in an inflationary decade and a decade that's going to be punctuated by high interest rates. Well, they couldn't go much lower than they were the past 15 years because they were close to zero. So I feel pretty safe in saying that. In the 1910 period, the equity market or the P.E. ratio was about 15. Started it out at about 15. 1940 period started out at about 16. The 1970 period started out at about 17. I don't know if you are aware of this, but the comparable price earnings ratio today is 29. That's where we're starting. So stocks based on price earnings ratios are starting 70% higher than in the prior three poster children period. That alone is a little bit scary. The prior podcasts that we've had focused on economic areas of weakness, and I really stand by those. And I recommend if you have an interest in refreshing What we discussed, please go back, and they're only 15 to 20 minutes each. Please go back and listen to some of them. They're all available. But today, we're not going to talk about economic weakness so much. We're going to close today's podcast with one indicator that's been a consistent precursor of significant recessions, the U.S. ISM Manufacturing Index for New Orders. That index is now at the lowest point since the Great Recession. And in the past, when the index has dropped to where it is now and continued to drop, as I personally think it will, we'll see. The last periods where the index has been below where it is now, we go back to the global financial crisis, 2000, 2001. We go back to the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. We go back to the tech bust in 2000, 2001. And we go back to the SNL crisis in the early 1990s. We could go back further to the double-dip recession back in the early 80s, and we could even go back to the stagflationary recession in the 70s. The point is this index has an amazing track record of anticipating a major stock market drop coupled with a major recession. And over the past nine times this index has dropped, eight of those times have been indicating a severe recession. I just call this to your attention. You're welcome to research it. We have a number of reasons that we've stated before to have the position that the economy is not in a healthy state. I invite you to go back and look at those, review those. But in any event, consider the markets are likely to remain volatile. And that may be independent of the Russia-Ukraine war. It may well be independent of the upcoming revival of the China economy, which will put pressure on the energy prices. There are a lot of trends that are changing now. And in my view, most of the trends indicate higher inflation ahead. Inflation is not under control in our workforce. It's not under control in our services. It is somewhat under control in our goods manufacturing, so that's good news. But for the next several weeks and several months, be cautious. 
preserve your savings and investment dollars and look very carefully at the economic indicators that are flashing red, the red signal that we've been talking about, certainly the past three or four podcasts. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornaden. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.